Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The case presented some real public safety issues for the citizens of the county, um, and it was clear that McDonald's conduct was not good for anybody in the county. Please rise. Court is now in session. This is the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how is Atlanta today? Um, super rainy, but as we were talking about, not as hot. So um, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, it's definitely been uh, been cooling down some. And um, but uh, you know, and and for Savannah here, usually it's so humid. But uh, but we've actually had some pretty nice weather in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I mean, what I was down there, what, a few weeks ago when I saw you and I already forgot how hot, what I moved away basically a year ago, I already forgot, already forgot how much hotter it is there than Atlanta. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, if you're here in, in August and we were just talking to our guest, Chris Hamilton, who lives in Dallas, he's in a similar position. Uh, if you're here in August, I mean, you know, uh, and you're outside for any amount of time, at least me, uh, I almost <laughs> immediately start to sweat. So that's always great. It's good. It purges the impurities from your system. Right. It's really good to try a case where you're wearing a suit and you got to rush to the courthouse and then uh, and try yeah. and cool down before you talk to the jury. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, Chris, I I, I mentioned you, uh, Chris. I, this is Chris Hamilton from Hamilton Wingo in Dallas, Texas, and you can look him up at hamiltonwingo.com. Uh, Chris, how are you doing today? Great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you on all the way from Dallas, Texas, and things are going well down there. Yeah, we're staying busy. You know, we're, uh, it's been a weird year, but I think we're probably going to have, if you believe it or not, our best year uh, yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. And it's caused some big shifts in the way that we practice law, but I think a lot of them are, are positive, not all of them, but I think a lot of them are going to be things that are going to be able to stick around and yeah. uh, it's going to be interesting to see how things change. No, absolutely. I mean, we've we've talked about this before, and 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 we've had a, a, a similar uh, similar year like you've had. Is, is um, and I guess maybe because you know we're spending more time at home, more time at the office, just focusing on our cases and traveling all over the place. But it, one thing that really has taught me is that you, we don't need to travel near as much as we do. Yeah, I, I joke uh, that Zoom is better than a private jet. Uh, I mean, it's really transformed how we practice law. And I think one of the things that it's doing is increasing the velocity of our cases, because in terms of my schedule, I'm basically able to do about three times as many depositions as I was doing before when you look at the count, because a lot of times a deposition would be a three day project if you're traveling across the country. And now I can do two in a day, even on different cases. And uh, I think it's going to change things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I will say that's impressive to do two in a day on two different cases, because I know I usually get focused on one case and then it's hard for me to shift focus onto another. Uh, it's painful, but <laughs> it, it can be done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, well, Chris, let me uh, just tell everybody a little bit about you before we talk about this case, which uh, uh, and we'll talk about it more. Is just such a tragic case, and uh, yeah. you know, as as a uh, parent that has a daughter that's getting ready to go off a co- go off to college, I mean, this is uh, this is a parent's nightmare, and and um, just an extremely tragic case. Oh my God! And this totally reminded me of high school. Like oh. we had a well, I won't 
We'll talk about that later. I'm not, <laughs> you haven't even talked. No, about I, I, think, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Yvonne. We'll talk about it in a second. But let me let me tell everybody about Chris uh, a little bit. Chris has got a, a long list of impressive accomplishments, not only just numerous uh, top 10 verdicts in the state of Texas, but top 100 verdicts in the nation, uh, including the 17th largest verdict uh, that he had, I think, maybe uh, back in 2014, uh, but has had multiple uh, uh, verdicts and trials that have uh, just gotten uh, uh, tremendous results. Uh, he was his, one of his trials that he tried in 2019 was named as uh, CVN's most imp- or one of their most impressive trials. Uh, Chris has been named to the Law Dragon 500 leading lawyers. That's the top 500 uh, lawyers across the country. Um, he's a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, uh, which is a fantastic organization and been named to the best lawyers in America in 2019. And then what I thought was really cool was the, that uh, you were named as a pro bono lawyer of the year by AAJ and named or at least nominated as Texan of the year by the Dallas Morning News uh, for representing people that had been uh, detained at DFW uh, airport unlawfully um, and doing pro-no, pro bono work. And so uh, so that's uh, a fantastic work. And then I, I should say that you've been named by D Magazine, which is a magazine there in Texas, is one of the best lawyers every year named it to super lawyers. And then uh, a, num- a lot of your work has been on CNN, Bloomberg, Dallas Morning News and all kinds of news networks. So we're really glad to have you here, Chris, and, and, to, and to talk about this, uh, this fascinating case, but tragic case, obviously. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so it, it, Yvonne and I were jumping the gun a little bit on this case uh, because um, it, it really is such a scary case. Um, and, and I'll just give the, a quick rundown of the facts. And Chris, as I said, if I uh, mess something up, feel free to uh, correct me. But uh, your clients were uh, Bailey Crisp and uh, Denton Ward. They're uh, both uh, decedents, passed away. Uh, you represented their families. But on February 18, 2012, uh, they were um, a, a freshmen at a school that was close to Texas A&M there in College Station, and I'm blanking on the name of the school. They, oh, Blinn's College. Blinn College. Blinn College, yeah. Um, so they were students there. Uh, they were uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, and they were going out with a couple of their friends, uh, a, a woman by the name of Samantha Bean and uh, Tanner Geeson. Um, and they had gone to a, a concert, uh, and, and I should mention they, they were basically freshmen. I think uh, Denton was 18 years old. Lauren was 19 years old. Uh, they had gone to a concert at a place called Hurricane Harry's and heard uh, Reckless Kelly. Uh, and then, um, and then they, it, it, you, as you s- stated in your complaint, I mean, and, and brought up right at the beginning, uh, they had been drinking alcohol and they had been uh, probably overserved. Uh, well, I mean, definitely for being underage, had been overserved by Hurricane Harry's. Um, but they had left Hurricane Harry's and they were. Um, uh, driving um, uh, home, and uh, they decided to stop at a McDonald's, uh, the University McDonald's. It's right there in College Station, uh, and it was uh, essentially one to grab some food. Um, and they and so the um, the ladies uh, Bailey and and Samantha went through the drive-through in Denton, and his uh, friend Tanner got out to use the restroom. And um, what they didn't know about this McDonald's was is that it. it 
after midnight, uh, this was a Saturday night after midnight around 2 a.m., um, this was a huge gathering place for people who were either leaving parties, uh, leaving uh, clubs, uh, hip hop clubs, and and was a, a large gathering for um, uh, for some of the black fraternities. And there was a, I think, what I saw maybe 400 people at this McDonald's, uh, both inside and outside of the McDonald's, uh, and that there had been a fraternity party earlier that night that had been broken up because there had been fighting at that uh, party. And so then they all go to the McDonald's. Um, And then we'll talk about this more, but there had been a prior incident about uh, maybe 30 minutes before where um, uh, somebody uh, was brandishing a gun in the McDonald's and they chose not to call the police about that. Um, But um, so Denton and uh, Tanner go to use the restroom and uh, on the way out, um, I think which the term you used was shoulder checked um, by a um, another uh, person that was there, a person named uh, Marcus Jamal Jones, uh, who was eventually arrested. A It sounds like a fight broke out between uh, Marcus uh, Jones and Tanner. And that Denton uh, essentially tried to break up that fight and uh, basically a whole crowd of people, uh, a mob, as you said, uh, gathered in and started just uh, beating, stomping on Denton and Tanner. Um, so that by the point that the ladies, uh, that Bailey and Samantha had gone through the drive-thru and were pulling up to pick them out, they were on the ground, surrounded by people being pummeled. Uh, and, um, I mean, to the point that, that, uh, Denton's uh, face was described as, as broken, as, as misformed, uh, by, a, I think a, a Marine that, that had come up on the scene. Uh, and, and so they basically went and pulled them. Uh, out of the McDonald's, uh, put them in the car. Uh, Denton uh, couldn't speak, couldn't uh, sit up, was uh, um, basically uh, on the verge of unconsciousness. Um, And they tried to go to the hospital. And I think Samantha was driving. uh, It was uh, Denton's vehicle, but Samantha was driving. She didn't really know how to get to the hospital and was, of course, dealing with this emergency situation where they uh, they believed that Denton was dying in the back of the of the back of the vehicle. Because of that, she ended up running a, a red light uh, and getting hit T-boned by another uh, vehicle that then spun them into a, a, a pole and uh, and basically killed Bailey uh, on impact. Uh, and then when. Um, the emergency personnel got there. Uh, Denton was also pronounced dead. Um, and uh, just a, a, a horrific circumstance. Um, before we get into the facts of the case, the jury verdict award for Denton was uh, $11 million for the survival action, uh, $5 million for pain and suffering for a total of $16 million. And then for Bailey, uh, for the survival action was uh, a verdict of $11 million. So for a total verdict for the two of them of $27 million against McDonald's. Um, so, and, you know, and that, that brings up a lot of issues. And what was, you know, some of the key issues at, ca- at the case, which was, you know, there's this subsequent, subsequent car collision where um, 
that it happened. And so there was going to be a big causation fight over whether or not the fight uh, had caused the death of Denton and then whether or not it was a proximate cause for Bailey's death. Um, So I think I've talked enough, uh, Chris. I know I've I've tried to cover the facts as best I could. Uh, how, How did I do? Did I get everything close enough? I thought you did a great job. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, I mean, as we were saying, I mean, this is such a scary case, such a, a, a tragic case and just, uh, you know, um, a, a, you know, a, a parent's nightmare, obviously a, a child's nightmare. But, um, you know, really, they were, they were just trying to get some food, trying to use the restroom and end up uh, paying for it uh, with their lives. Um, and it's so, I mean, this is what I was talking about earlier. I feel like a lot of people in small towns or maybe bigger towns had a McDonald's like this, like my town did. And it was sort of like when, you know, a party or something else got broken up or you weren't ready to go home, you would just kind of stop by it. And depending on what time it was um, and what night it was and just other things, it could go from sort of a somewhat innocent um you know, teenagers trying to see each other to something totally different. Um, But also in my town, I think it closed at maybe 11 or midnight. And of course, one of the things we're going to talk about in this case is, is what was different about this McDonald's location. But I just, it really resonated with me because it's like, you could go, so many of us have a place like this in town where you could go on the wrong night or at the wrong time and something like this could happen. Yeah. You know, one of the um, interesting things with this case is where it fits in the bigger picture of the changes in the way fast food restaurants operate, including the hours that you referred to. And one of the things that I didn't know when I started, but found out as we went along was that um, there was a similar cycle for convenience stores in the United States where they started to extend their hours And then when they extended the hours, they found that there are additional risks that go along with that, right? And so uh, in urban areas, it's why we often see security cameras everywhere, uh, off-duty police officers, that sort of thing at strategic locations for convenience stores. In the mid-2000s, and that developed in the 70s and 80s, and the more I researched it, what I found is it was actually a series of jury verdicts that led to some of those changes in the industry. In the mid 2000s, the uh, in, into the uh, early 2010s, the fastest growing segment in the fast food industry was the midnight to 4 a.m. And in fact, right around this same time uh, that this incident occurred, McDonald's was reporting record profit on their 12 to 4 a.m. Uh, they were reporting record profits, and the driver of the record profits was that time period. This particular store, we later learned at the time the incident occurred, was one of two test stores in the country for an after midnight menu that was really targeting that segment and targeting food combinations that were directed to drunk people, Um, which is fine. That's a legitimate business. But if you're going to engage in that business, you need to take the safety of the customers into account. And At this McDonald's, there was something going on that I feel pretty confident was beyond even the wild nights in your small town. Right. Uh, it, it was really shocking to, I think, the jurors, to the judge, to me, when we dug in and found out what the, uh, the history was at this store and the problems that the police were having, and the police had been trying to get the store to take action, and they wouldn't. Uh, but I think one of the interesting 
things that I learned about was really those those kind of cross currents. And McDonald's at the time that this case went to trial was the Burger King was moving to off-duty police officers for security. Uh, Jack in the Box was doing the same thing. Whataburger was doing the same thing, not just at individual stores, but as a company policy. And McDonald's had drawn a line in the sand and said, that's the police department's job. We're not paying for off-duty security. And the only reason McDonald's would hire off-duty security is if it was necessary to protect their property as opposed to the safety of the customer. And so, um, you know, this was a really tragic case, but I think if there was any positive development out of it, I do think it's had some impact if you look at uh, those trends in the fast food industry. And I know that McDonald's has um, perhaps not voluntarily changed their approach to the way that they handled these sorts of things uh, because it is a, it is a, a potential safety issue. It's a legitimate yeah. business segment, but it has to be handled the right way. Yeah, and and one thing that you, I I thought in your opening you you painted a really um, you, you know uh, a good sort of picture or timeline of what had happened and and you know with my first thought when I was reading this case was is you know was this a franchise store and you know and I know there can be some issues with going up the chain to sue McDonald's if it's a franchise store but this actually had been a um, had had been a franchise from 1973 to 2005. Um, and then in 2005, McDonald's, uh, basically bought it back and, um, and, and, and made it one of the corporate stores. And then I think it was in 2008, uh, just decided that they were going to stop, um, uh, providing security and right. really stop, uh, what I've really found shocking, uh, and y'all did such a great job of was really stop doing anything to track crime across their stores across the country or or at least not doing much. I mean, basically you described it as one guy sitting at his home, you know, with an Excel spreadsheet, basically trying to figure out, you know, throughout their tens of thousands of stores, you know, what crimes had happened, which is, uh, you know, a ridiculous for a company the size of McDonald's. Well, they had actually eliminated their program for collecting data regarding security incidents, crimes, and, and, injuries to customers at their stores. And so it really looked like as part of a business strategy, they had just decided we're better off not having this information. Um, and if you look at, I'm most familiar with Texas, but if you look at the premises liability standards in the different mm-hmm. states, uh, Texas being the applicable one here, there are notice and knowledge requirements. Yep. And so I can't help but think that McDonald's decided, you know what, we're better off from a liability perspective if we don't know. Um, Of course, you know, no customer wants to go risk their lives to get a cheeseburger if they know that's what the business practice is. But most people see the golden arches and they think, you know, this is a safe place to stop. And that was one of the things that struck me, too, is I, I, I remember when I was a kid, my parents, you know, I, I got the impression that if I'm in a situation and I need a safe place to go, that McDonald's is a safe place to go. Uh, and so to see what we saw in this case uh, was really kind of eye-opening. Yeah, well, and you think about, I mean, that's true. First of all, this situation was very different from my hometown McDonald's, but also I do think that you go to an establishment like that, especially where there's a drive-through that kind of go, that goes around the store and you sort of think, you know, that's, 
this is a this is a business. This is an established business. This is a famous business, and so they're going to be taking care of their parking lot and their customers and what at least to a total lay person feels like their property. You know, so the idea that there's just no one looking at the parking lot or no one caring about the parking lot, or I think one of the things that you pointed out, maybe in the close, but maybe in the opening, was that the cameras that they did have were all sort of pointed into the store and as sort right. of more related to business profits and that sort of thing and not safety. Um, I do think that's really surprising. I think most people would expect much more than that, especially, and that's without a, an extensive history of violence and problems at a certain location, right. which you had here. Yeah. I mean, there was a history of aggravated assaults, people getting broken jaws, people, uh, getting their head bashed against the curb. I mean, it was really kind of stunning. And to go back to the uh, beginning, you all mentioned the start of the night. One of the things that was um, interesting about this case is when I first came into it, uh, I was brought into it by a law school classmate of mine. And uh, he had first brought the case as a dram shop case against Hurricane Harris because the autopsy said that they both died uh, from the car wreck and it was effectively characterized like it was a drunk driving accident. And we, uh, he asked me to sit in the deposition of the lady who was the driver, Samantha Bean, uh, in this dram shop case. And I sat in the deposition and I heard her describing what had happened at the McDonald's. And we went out of the room on a break and I said, you got to look into this. Uh, and so we had done some negligent security cases before, and we sent open records requests. And once we dug in, I mean, we were, I had never seen a, a, a store with this type of history. And so it became a negligent security case in the process of, of us really trying to get to the bottom of what had happened. Uh, but it started out with me just sitting in on a, a deposition in a dram shop case that was a completely different case than the one that went to trial. Yeah, and I was just going to say that I noticed in the complaint, I mean, you did have a dram shop uh, a cause of action against the owner of uh, Hurricane Harry's. I think they were called Little Skyneck. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Okay, and and I was, and and it sounded like they had overserved. I mean, the the, the complaint pretty pretty much describes uh, that you know your clients and their friends had had a number of drinks uh, to the point that I think it described that Bailey you know had fallen down on the dance floor or something like that, and that uh, Tanner couldn't could walk in a straight line or something like you know things like that. Um, and I guess I was wondering, did did that case get resolved before trial, and then and then. Uh, and y'all chose just to go to trial against McDonald's? Uh, yeah, I mean, we made it, I made an evaluation that it was a case against McDonald's. And so we settled the case against Hurricane Harry's. Um, but I, I just, once we dug in and started talking to eyewitnesses and getting, you know, learning the evidence, it became pretty clear. It wasn't really the dram shop or alcohol that had caused the deaths, that yeah. we were dealing with something different. So, you know, one thing that sort of struck me about this and I was, you know, wondering from a proximate cause standpoint is, you know, there's there was no question that your clients had been at McDonald's, had been involved in an altercation there and had been beaten and, you know, and beaten badly and were on their way to the hospital. And, you know, and so but then there became this big, at least what sounded like this big fight at trial about whether or not Denton had suffered his 
fatal injuries at McDonald's or as part of the collision. And it's clear that Bailey suffered her fatal injuries as part of the collision, but it was as a result of trying to get Denton to the hospital. Um, and she's and, like unbelted, right? Trying right. to help him. Right. She, had, she, had, uh, she was, uh, I think, initially sitting in the front seat and then she had moved to the back to help Denton. And I think there was some testimony that if she had stayed in the front seat, she probably would have lived in the collision uh, because she had moved to the, the rear seat to help Denton. She had uh, gotten killed. And, but, but part of me was wondering, um, why, would, why was there such a big fight on whether or not Denton suffered his uh, fatal injuries at McDonald's? You know, I mean, uh, you know, it's clear that they were driving the way they were driving to get to the hospital because of what happened to McDonald's. So from a proximate cause standpoint, I guess, uh, you know, it, it didn't seem like it would make a difference. But what, what was the, the, it seemed like that was a huge part of the, the defense in the case was that he, he didn't die from what happened to him at McDonald's. Yeah, that was really important. And I think it, it's important from a legal perspective. And then it's important from a kind of visceral perspective with the jury when you played out from a legal perspective, the, you've basically got like the rescuer doctrine, right? right. And so uh, for Bailey, that was more clear with regard to Denton, depending on what had put him in that situation, the causation piece, if he died in a car accident, which one I just factually do not think was true for reasons right. I'll talk about in a minute. And that, that was probably the biggest reason we pushed it. But legally, if Denton had minor injuries, as McDonald's described it, and then a drunk driver drives the wrong way to a hospital with a guy that maybe didn't even need to get to the hospital, as McDonald's is characterizing it, there's, there was a causation problem with the right. case. Okay. And, um, I think even while we felt pretty good on the restatement of torts with regard to Bailey, there wasn't even a Texas case that put us, that, that, that really recognizes the rescuer doctrine. And so I think that before you get to the, uh, the injury that caused the death for Denton, I think demonstrating the severity of his injuries at McDonald's, which had been initially overlooked by the police in the corner was really important for the jury to understand that this was truly a medical emergency and not right. a situation where this was a minor little fight and then a drunk driving accident. Okay. Um, when we dug deeper on it, though, what we found is that the injury that uh, didn't had that was the fatal injury was a basilar skull fracture that likely occurred at the same time as a broken jaw. And uh, that one of the mechanisms of injury for the basilar skull fracture is to have the jaw effectively pushed up into the skull where it causes the ring or the base of the skull to break. There was, we know that Denton had a broken jaw. Uh, we know that there was descriptions of him being kicked in the head. And uh, critically, the, the really critical piece of physical evidence that we found was this. Denton's body was found in the rear cargo area of the Forerunner, near the pole. He had been seated in the back seat. The basilar skull fracture that occurred caused the basilar artery to sever. And once the basilar artery severs, you're going to die. You might live eight minutes, you might live 20 minutes, but it's really, really impossible to stop. And so we knew that once he had suffered that basilar artery, 
rupture, he was going to bleed out. So one of the things we found when we went back to the vehicle is we saw that there was some blood dripping out of his ears, which is what you have with a basilar skull fracture. But in the rear cargo area of the vehicle, there was no blood other than on his body. But in the area where he was seated before the wreck, Mm -hmm. there was a huge amount of blood in the carpet that the expert described as wicking up like a napkin dipped into a glass of water and that we were dealing with a very large amount of blood. And so we had physical evidence that showed that that fatal injury had to have occurred prior to the wreck because the blood was in the wrong place. And I think that, so at the end of the day, the reason that was a big fight is because it was just the truth. And we couldn't allow this description of those injuries having occurred in a wreck when we knew they occurred at McDonald's. And it it really changed the dynamic for the jury to understand that. And I think it's one of the major um, miscalculations that McDonald's made coming into the case is they just thought, we're going to say this is some minor little fight and a bunch of drunk driving and kids being stupid. And when the jury was able to hear both from the witnesses and see and the experts and see the physical evidence, I don't think there was anybody in that courtroom that believed that Denton's fatal injuries had come from the car wreck as opposed to the fight. Right. So I, I guess I didn't, I, I didn't realize that McDonald's was playing down the severity of the, of the attack of the fight. Oh yeah. Uh, so, okay. So they were basically treating this as it had been a, a more of a minor altercation he had gotten roughed up. And I did see that there was some uh, reference to that the medical examiner, I think, had, had attributed a, a fractured nose, some facial, facial uh, lacerations and some blood aspiration uh, to the assault, but then didn't attribute anything else to the assault. And that, that right. ended, we're making that a point. So um, and I guess it, it sounded like there might have also been a problem for McDonald's in that it sounded like they had video of what happened inside the store, but maybe had erased it or taped over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What happened is the police came to the scene. uh, The, I guess came to the McDonald's the next day uh, and asked for the video of what had happened. And the McDonald's manager um, who there was some evidence that he was maybe encouraging some of these large crowds in the parking lot, the McDonald's manager told the, uh, police officer that he didn't have the key to the video and he'd have to get back to him. Uh, and that went on for like a month. And then when they finally get the video, they get a segment of the video that McDonald's had selected for him, but the rest of it was deleted forever. Oh, And so um, there was, yeah, there was an issue there. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos 
stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10 percent off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10 percent off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. uh, Give them a try. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to touch on something you said earlier, um, Chris, because I think this comes up a lot. And and especially for newer lawyers, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Um, I think this this can happen a lot in a products case or just a case where there's a bigger picture where you have the responding officers or the responding EMTs or whatever who are they're responding to the scene of a car wreck. So they're kind of seeing everything through that lens. Can you talk a little bit about what you do? either in the depositions of those people or through discovery to kind of flesh out the things that they're not really looking for. And so they've kind of missed in those initial police reports and those documents that end up, you know, being used in your case. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, we, we deal with this. We all deal with this all the time, right? Uh, the And juries really put a lot of weight, as we all know, on what police officers say what the county medical examiner says. And so that was a big uphill battle in this case, uh, at least initially. I think, um, you know, we took the depositions of every police officer that we could. And uh, through that, we really developed their knowledge of the history of the store, first of all. Um, Then we, uh, one of the key developments in the case was that McDonald's, not me, McDonald's noticed the depositions of the police chief and the assistant chief of police because they were sure that these are the type of people who are going to come in and tell the jury that, oh, it's okay, it's all safe and everything like that. And while the chief of police was pretty, you know, politically neutral and didn't want to say much, the the assistant chief of police was very, very honest. And he explained that it was uh, a dangerous location, that it was an unreasonable risk of harm to the public, that they needed off-duty security, that they brought that up with them before, that they refused to get off-duty security, and that all the other businesses in the area were using off-duty security except McDonald's, and that part of the reason they believe everybody was going to McDonald's is because they knew there weren't going to be any police there, like there were at the Whataburger and the Taco Cabana and the other nearby restaurants. And so, um, Part of it is just to give them the full picture, right? And to give people additional facts they didn't know. And so by going out uh, and taking depositions of eyewitnesses and developing that evidence and bringing it back to the police officers uh, and saying, look, were you aware of this witness? And you've got to be very, you know, professional and respectful about it. 
But if you can show police officers that there are eyewitnesses that through no fault of their own, maybe they took their name down, but they didn't get their information, um, you know, that can really start to change the evaluation. And so the testimony of the police officers ended up being extremely helpful to us. Uh, yeah. And we had a security expert, but did not call him and effectively use the police officers as our security experts. The medical examiner uh, didn't budge, okay? He just, as you can imagine, I mean, I've, we deal with this really all the time. Um, you know, the medical examiners are, are sometimes hard to budge, but it didn't really matter uh, because he didn't have uh, things like the photograph that I mentioned uh, showing the blood in the back seat. So once I realized he wasn't going to budge, I didn't try to present him with everything so that he could then still stand his ground. Mm -hmm. What I did is said things like, you know, did you have access to the photographs of the vehicle to show where the blood was located? Do you agree that uh, this injury, this fatal injury would have caused Denton to bleed out? Do you agree that wherever he suffered this injury, we're going to find a big pool of blood? Do you agree that if this injury occurred in the car wreck, there would be a large volume of blood located where his body was found in the rear cargo area of the vehicle? And so we just set him up and uh, politely and respectfully. Uh, but uh, the jury, I think once the jury saw the evidence, they just knew that they had evidence that this guy didn't have. Yeah. And the description that he had received was that it was a minor fight. He never heard a witness say that his face looked broken or anything like that. And so, you know, he's a medical examiner. He made his official report. He didn't want to change it because if he did, by the way, it should have been a murder case right. uh, that they didn't bring. Uh, but the, the jury just the jury didn't have a very hard time with dealing with this testimony because the jury saw the evidence. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I um, I I was going to ask you about this issue because you know you you had the police giving such strong testimony and um and the I think it was the the uh, deputy chief of police who uh, had testified basically to the fact like you just said that they needed to get some security help there because not only were they putting the people at McDonald's at risk but they were also putting his officers at risk because i think there had been a couple of incidents before this where there where there had been reports of 30 40 people fighting in the parking lot i think one time they had 100 people they were uh, you know fighting in the parking lot and the and the officer who was the first one that reported to the scene uh, had to pull out his uh, his assault rifle uh, yeah. in order to, you know, sort of bring people under control. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, it, it really sounded like from the police standpoint um, that, you know, you had painted the picture where they thought it was so dangerous that they were going to be putting police officers at risk um, in addition to, you know, the customers and, you know, uh, people who are there at the McDonald's. Um, yeah, and that, that's... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, I, I, I don't want to catch you. I was just going to go back to this point of notice and knowledge. And I, was, I mean, what you all had mentioned was, I think, 210 calls, um, most of them with between that 12 and 4 a.m. And then I think I saw somewhere a reference to like 50 gang fights before this. So, I mean, really overwhelming evidence about notice and knowledge. But McDonald's was pretending like it never happened. Yeah, exactly. The uh, so a couple important points you raised there. One, 
the issue, I think one of the quotes, if I remember correctly, from the assistant chief was that it was a drain on resources. And that, I think, was important because it's not only was it putting the officers at risk, it was putting the rest of the people in Brazos County at risk, mm -hmm. that the police force that they need to defend their county of 100,000 people is now sending half the officers they have on duty across the county on a Saturday night to this one location. And um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think is so important in, in cases like this is how does the case impact the juror? Right. Yeah. We struggled with in this case, where do we file this case? Should we file it in Illinois where McDonald's is headquartered? The, the record verdict in Brazos County prior to this case was less than two million. Uh, the record settlement was less than two million. Wow. And so, you know, it was a there were a lot of and, and it was the reason they wouldn't settle the case. They just thought, oh, there's never going to be a big verdict here. But the case presented some real public safety issues for the citizens of the county. Um, and it was clear that McDonald's conduct was uh, was not good for anybody in the county. And so I think that was um, that was really kind of helping develop that understanding in a local venue like that in a smaller town is always really critical. Yeah. Well, and, and I was thinking and, and we haven't asked about the. Um, the, the parents of, uh, of Bailey and, um, and Denton, but, you know, the, it seemed like Bailey and Denton were sort of like, you know, the typical type of, you know, kids you would see in Brazos County. Uh, and so they probably could identify them, but it also sounded like the, the parents were just uh, really salt of the earth people who uh, just had gone through this tremendous loss. And I, I, I take it from what uh, in the opening, you said you weren't going to have them there during trial, but they testified. How did they, how did they Correct. do it? How did they come across? Uh, salt of the earth. I mean, they were just real, and they were heartbroken. I mean, you can, I mean, the, um, you know, to lose 18, 19 year old kids like this was just devastating. Uh, so there was no way to make the parents sit through this entire trial. Right. Uh, and so we made a judgment call on that, got permission from the jury in Vordyer. They did testify and they all did great. None of them testified for a particularly long time. Um, the one that I was most worried about, um, Mr. Crisp, Bailey's dad, he was, um, he was a very stoic character, very unemotional, hard to get to say more than three to five words. Uh, and ended up being one, I mean, maybe set the standard for a parent testifying in a wrongful death case. He was so good when he got on the stand. Um, and there's one um, thing I'll never forget. They were, they had, there was, I don't remember exactly now, but they were criticizing Bailey because she had gone in to try to pull this group of people off of Denton and were suggesting that she was out of control or that she was, you know, drunk. And that's why she got in the middle of this and really blaming her for that. And her dad near the end of his testimony um, referred to her as a hero and said that he was proud of her. And uh, it was a very powerful moment in the trial. And it made it so that their strategy of just attacking these kids over and over really started to backfire on them. But these, these parents are just salt of the earth people. And in fact, I took a deposition in Brazos County the other day 
And I actually stayed right by this McDonald's. I did. It was a new hotel. I didn't know it was going to be right there. I went on my morning run. I did the whole route. I went by Hurricane Harry's and then I called the parents later that day and talked to everybody. Um, and so I'm, these these are families that I've kept in touch with even years later. Just great, great people. Well, and, and speaking of the of the families and of, and of blaming the kids, I mean, one of the things that I read in, in the portion of the transcripts that we had that really just rubbed me the wrong way. And sure, I'm already, you know, biased towards the plaintiff anyway, but I, I just didn't like this idea of it seemed like one of the defense strategies was to attack the kids for not basically staying and and waiting and reporting it to existing police presence or stopping the car earlier once they left or and and driving past the police station or or something which right for me that rubbed me the wrong way for a lot of reasons including the fact of thinking that if you've got a friend whose face is basically unrecognizable who's who's bleeding and not able to communicate with you and you get in the car and are trying to find a, ho- a hospital or you know you're presented with that emergency situation i think most of us i don't know if i could get in the car right now completely sober without somebody with a beaten up face and remember exactly how to get to the hospital. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Just that idea of attacking them for not staying in this place where they've just been attacked by a group of people or not acting with more sort of concise sort of, I don't know, quicker actions. Just, I can't imagine that the jury liked that. You know, those are great points. What's really interesting is that you may have seen this from the transcript. They refer over and over again to the 11 minutes, if I remember the number correctly, 11 minutes from when they left the scene to when they got in the wreck and all the things they could have done in 11 minutes. And did they have cell phones in the vehicle? And this was just a repeating theme. And I'll be honest now, uh, in focus groups, that was a problem for us. It was a problem that they had gone that far after a really serious incident and nobody pulled over uh, to call. It was an issue. Now, when you hear all the evidence and you understand how bad it was, it's certainly mitigating, but it was it they, the it was an argument that they had probably tested in focus groups and knew there was some potential for traction with, even though I was really offended by it. And so one of the things we did, and I don't, I don't know which all transcripts y'all saw, but on the cross-examination of one of the corporate representatives, um, we addressed this after they had talked about cell phones, 11 minutes, 11 minutes, I said, well, let's go back from 2008 when y'all fired the security mm-hmm. to 2012 when the wreck occurred. And I want to talk about how many minutes y'all had to get an off-duty police officer out there <laughs> to, to save these kids' lives. And so we did the math. I said, all these executives in Oak Brook, Illinois, do they all have cell phones? I said, yes, they do. And, and do... Um, and gosh, let's just assume, do they eight hours a day? How many, do they work more than eight hours a day? Oh, probably so. Let's do eight hours a day. And I did it on a flip chart with the math and it was 500,000 minutes. And I said, and when, when these executives are on their cell phones in the corporate office, do they have mobs of people banging down their doors, screaming against them, kicking on their heads, all that sort of stuff? No, no, I don't think so. Well, so do you have any reason why in the half a million minutes between 2008 and 2011 that they were on duty that they couldn't pick up their cell phone and call the police to get somebody out there to prevent this from happening? And I, I don't remember hearing 11 minutes after that. Right. Uh, <laughs> but it was a potentially 
It was a potentially dangerous issue that we had to deal with, but it was very, very unfair. And I was personally offended by it. So I was glad that the jury didn't, um, mm -hmm. didn't go with them on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about a, another issue that comes up a lot in the, in the uh, negligent security cases, which is the decision of whether or not to sue the assailant. Um, you had the name of at least one person, a, a person named Marcus Jamal Jones, who had sort of started the fight. There had been, I think, maybe 20 other people who had been involved that you didn't have the names of. Um, it, you know, talk about the decision not to, you know, include him as a defendant in the case. And then it sounded like you actually uh, deposed him and he gave some pretty good testimony uh, about not only what happened, but what they could have done to prevent this from happening. Yeah, a great point. So I would generally say, I hate to make bright line rules, but I would almost never sue somebody that was responsible for murdering or committing an aggravated assault against somebody else um, and bring them into the case just because if somebody's engaging in that type of behavior, it is going to be really hard for the jury to look past the anger that they have at this individual and look at a bigger cause. It's just the way human psychology works. And so if you need them as a venue defendant or to keep the case in state court or whatever it may be, there's always considerations. Um, but uh, generally I would say, and particularly in a situation like this where there were so many incidents, this was not about one guy this was, it could have, we didn't even know if he was the guy that, you know, actually was, made the fatal blow. This was about a company with a pattern of behavior and, and there were so many people there. If it wasn't this guy, it was another one. But the deposition was really interesting um, because I had actually made a decision not to depose him for the exact reasons we've talked about, because I felt like I wasn't really sure that he was ultimately the assailant and giving the jury somebody, an individual to be upset with, I thought risk taking the heat off McDonald's. So I didn't ask for his deposition right before the trial, McDonald's decides to take his deposition. And so they go in and they get him to say bad things about our clients. And then on cross-examination, he, as you pointed out, really helps prove our case that an off-duty police officer would have prevented all of this. He said there never would have been a fight if there'd been an off-duty officer. That's one of the hardest things under Texas law in these cases is there's a couple Texas Supreme Court cases that say that you have to have testimony that directly proves that the security measure that you're suggesting should have been there would have more likely than not prevented this. And so there's even a bunch of cases where the Texas Supreme Court has come back later and said, well, okay, maybe they should have had a security guard, but you're missing the link of connecting that that security guard would have in fact prevented this incident. Well, how, who better could you get that from? I didn't want to take the risks associated with getting the testimony, but once he was there, who better could you get that from than the guy that threw the first punch? And so that was legally just mega compelling, but it didn't stop there. The, the most fascinating part was near the end. And if I recall correctly, I think that I had even passed him. And then there was some follow-up and it was my recross where I found out that McDonald's had hired the guy oh. and he was working at, yes, 
he was working, yes, at the local factory that made the buns for McDonald's. And he was an employee of McDonald's Corporation at the time of his deposition. He had been hired after this incident. And so for them to then try to go tell the jury that it was all his fault and he was effectively responsible for the deaths of these people. And then they hired him and gave him a job so they could get the testimony they wanted out of him. I was wondering how they found it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that oh my God, that's insane. Of truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, yeah, you just exactly. can't make it up. Well, and we should mention, um, I mean, I think one other thing that he testified to that you mentioned in the closing was that um, he had personally said he had personally witnessed 30 fights at this McDonald's. Um, So, I mean, you know, and then uh, there was the issue of um, the general manager of the McDonald's who um, uh, I think somebody asked him, do you know who Marcus Jamal Jones is? And he says, I don't know who you're talking about. And then they show him a picture and he says, oh, you mean plucky. Yeah, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah. And he's, and so, he, you know, basically he knows who this guy is. But one point we haven't talked about is that the, the general manager had been encouraged to bring in business any way that he could. And so what he uh, had done is become a DJ uh, and would throw these giant parties. Uh, and then basically, and, and I think you had a picture of him in his McDonald's outfit, you know, being a DJ at where like 2000 people are. And then after it's over, inviting everybody to come to McDonald's, yeah. you know, to get something to eat. So, you know, right. basically encouraging these huge crowds where you, where you knew people were intoxicated, where you knew it was going to be too many people uh, at this McDonald's that was being done by the general manager. And then you got some great testimony from him about um, when he, how he uses security. Do you, right. do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that now. I've forgotten that. Yeah. He talked to, he would host these private parties And he was getting pressure to grow the business at the McDonald's. And so he decided to invite the people from the private parties over to the McDonald's. And, um, you know, it it just, it was, there were way too many people there. And if you could have seen the videos inside this store, we didn't have the parking lot. It was so far over capacity. I mean, it was just nuts. It did not look like, it looked like a nightclub. And so... Yeah, uh, that was an interesting piece of the case. And I just don't think you can overlook, though, how does it end up that McDonald's decides that one store in College Station, Texas, is going to be the guinea pig for the new midnight to 4 a.m. program? I mean, they can say all they want about we didn't have a database of incidents or whatever else, but they can tell from the sales they had at that store that they had a huge number of people there. And that's why they were using this as a test market, because they had so many people at that store. And so at the end of the day, yeah, it, it was a they they made a business decision that the corporate executives absolutely had to know about because they're making this their their store for their test market that they're going to then report to shareholders. And they knew that this was a place that had a whole lot going on. So. Uh, yeah, I'd forgotten some of that, but it was, yeah. it, again, in the category of sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Well, and not only that, but you had, uh, uh, um, during his deposition, I think uh, somebody had asked him when he does these private parties, do you hire security? Yeah. And he said, yes. And, you know, how many security personnel do you hire? And he said, one per hundred people. Exactly. Um, so if you have 400 people at McDonald's, he's saying you should have four you know, police officers, four officers. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had forgotten about that. You're exactly right. So he was almost a security expert for us too. And he admitted that he knew the exact people to call. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Because he had used them before for his own private parties. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing Com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice. It's such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. One thing I was wondering is, um, you know, so when they make the decision to stop security and um, and make the decision to basically stop tracking it. Uh, you had a corporate representative on the stand. I mean, what what did what was their explanation for stopping security and stopping tracking uh, incidents? Uh, there wasn't a good one. There right. wasn't a good one. Um, the guy that we called uh, adverse was somebody that was in subpoena range. He wasn't the highest ranking person, uh, but we had deposed two other people there. Illinois corporate security guy, and then their Texas regional security guy. We tried to get them to come to trial, but they said they're outside of subpoena range. Um, what was really interesting, I can't remember either of their names at this point, but the main security guy, I, I still remember, I can remember his face and I remember his deposition because I had gotten so many admissions from the police and other witnesses about the history and pattern of violence at this store. And I take the security guy's deposition. And he just insists that there's no pattern of violence at the store. That was their position as to why there was no security, because there was no pattern of violence at the store. And he repeated that over and over again. And I remember leaving his deposition. It was one of the greatest learning experiences of my career, because I left his deposition and I was very disappointed with myself. And I thought, you know what? I, maybe I'm just, there's, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I just really was down on myself because this guy would not give an inch. And we got in the trial and we played his deposition 
And the first time we played his deposition, jurors were laughing at him. Right. And then during closing argument, I thought one of the jurors who was a truck driver who ended up being a foreman was about to come out over the ledge. He was so pissed when we played that guy's video. And so they were just recalcitrant about it. They just said, oh, there's no problem. There's no problem. There's no need. There's no pattern of violence at the store. And it was actually a great learning experience for me because now in every case, I realize that, you know, you need a deposition like that. If right. I joke sometimes that if the corporations and insurance companies would just accept responsibility and, uh, and apologize, I might be sleeping under a bridge, but they just can't seem to figure that out. And yeah. I had another one again the other day, did the exact same thing. And so, um, you know, for the younger lawyers, uh, sometimes the witness that won't agree with anything that you say is your best friend in front of a jury. And I think that those witnesses were critical to this verdict because the jury just felt like they wouldn't listen to reason. And so they had to communicate through a verdict. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and, and those depositions, I, I agree with you, can be painful to sit through because you're you're not getting the stuff that you think that you want. But if you right. sit back and you realize how ridiculous somebody sounds when they when they refuse to agree. Uh, but I, I'll never forget when I was a young lawyer, I, I heard a lawyer who had a case against Domino's where uh, one of the Domino's drivers was trying to meet the 30 minute window and had a car accident and killed somebody. And they had taken the CEO's deposition of Domino's and asked him, you know, do you think this 30 minute, you know, um, uh, time clock, you know, and getting it there is a good idea. And the, the Domino's CEO, to his credit, said, no, after this, this happened, it's not worth it. And it was a bad idea and we shouldn't have done it. And he just took all of the heat against Domino's out of yeah. that case by just, say, just admitting we shouldn't have done it. We made a mistake and we're going to change it. And that, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I know defendants know this, they, they, they you know, so because they've heard us say it before. So I, I don't feel like I'm giving away any secrets because uh, no matter how many times we say it, everybody continues to do what they did, in your I know. Case, which is just deny. Right. Um, Chris, I wanted to ask you from a sort of um, technical approach in your, both in your opening and your closing, we, you know, we've been talking about all the good deposition testimony that you had, and you used a lot of it to kind of set up what the case was going to be about, I think, very effectively in your opening. And I couldn't tell from the transcripts when you were doing that, were you playing video clips? Were you, yes. were you reading it? You were playing the videos. We were playing video clips. Okay. And I, I always effective. like to do that if I can. I always yeah. like to do it if I can. You know, I used to want to be Cicero and persuade everybody with my <laughs> oratory. And now I kind of have come to believe less is more. Right, and right. the more that a jury can see and hear evidence in the opening, if you're allowed to do it. And even though it may be my voice on the videos, the more I can present my story through that medium, I just think it's more effective. Uh, it's more entertaining, uh, but it also requires them to trust me less. And I actually had an experience in a focus group this past weekend where I was doing a, um, we were doing, we basically did morning sessions that were kind of testing a worst case scenario with no advocacy. 
And, uh, and so I had a ser- I had a presentation that I was supposed to just minimally moderate. Uh, well, the technology busts. And so I start talking to fill the gap and the level of interest in the room just plummeted. <laughs> and so, yeah, if I can, I love to present jurors love movies. Everybody loves movies. Mm-hmm. We all love movies. You've got to keep it interesting. It's got to be short. It's got to be minimal. The clips need to in an opening. No clip should ever be over 30 seconds. Um, you know, certainly not over a minute, but I absolutely am a big believer of that. And I think the more you can show and the less you can talk, particularly early on, um, the more you can get a juror feeling like they're reaching their own conclusions as opposed to just having it crammed down their throats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering the same thing as Yvonne was. So in your opening statements, is that normal for Texas that you can play clips of depositions uh, in, in opening? I've heard a lot of judges tell me they've never seen that before. Uh, (laughs) Most of them go along with it. Uh, There is something in the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure that says that a certain subset of depositions can be used for any purpose. Okay. And so I argue that the depositions fitting in that category, that any purpose means to present them anyway. And so we will also, you know, so that includes using them in opening. Um, it also includes things like playing deposition clips for another witness to comment on, which some people sometimes say, well, I've never heard that before. But the rules say I can use it for any purpose and present it any way I want. So sometimes I may even present, if I have a short, if I have a deposition that has a few really important things, but I don't want to even bother calling the witness, sometimes you may even present the testimony through another witness by playing clips like that. So I'm oh, a big cool. fan of using that, that technology in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if if, if you can, I, I, I've ha- I've tried it before in my career, and most judges shut me down. They say you can tell the jury what it's going to say. You can't show the jury. But uh, yeah, well, no, what I, I think it's great. What I do if they if they gut me on it is I just show the picture and then I'll read the testimony. Right. But I yes, in presentation, and they get to see their face, and it's kind of there's an association when they hear it later. Right, exactly. I, I should mention that you know. So, um, and and I don't know in Texas is is, is it an apportionment? Um, it, like if you know there was a breakdown of percentages between who the right. jury could determine was at fault. Does that mean the damages get apportioned to those uh, those who are found at fault? Uh, yes, but it's a little more complicated here. McDonald's was jointly and severally liable. Okay, uh, but they can get reductions if if a Plaintiff has 51% or more, then that's a contrib bar. Um, but otherwise, it's an offset, and it can also be used to set up indemnification claims. Okay, yeah. Uh, but the judgment, if I recall here, was uh, was joint and several because McDonald's had something like 97%. Right, yeah, and that, that's what I was going to mention is so the, the, I mean, the jury had the ability to apportion between uh, seven different uh, parties, including Hurricane Harry's, which you know had been serving the alcohol to underage people, including uh, Samantha Bean, who had been driving the vehicle when the co- collision happened, including um, uh, Tanner, you know, who I who I guess there was an argument maybe he had started the fight, um, and and the way the jury apportioned it was ninety seven percent to McDonald's. Two percent to Marcus Jones, the the one you knew was an assailant, and then one percent to John Doe's, which, you know, could have been up to like twenty people who had been involved in attacking Denton. Um, I mean, that's just tremendous work. I, you know, do you? 
I, I guess I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your sort of take on how you think you got them to give such a small percentage to the assailants versus McDonald's. And obviously McDonald's had said some really bad stuff as we've talked here. Right. Um, but uh, as, as far as either your closing argument, did you ask them or tell them, you know, how you thought it should be apportioned? Um, I honestly don't recall if I had to guess, I, I think I, I don't think I suggested a specific number, but I suggested a very small number for the assailants and the great majority of the responsibility on McDonald's. I don't remember exactly what I said. Um, the, honestly, the, the, one of the biggest challenges from the focus groups was reducing the allocation on Samantha Bean, um, who was the driver who was over the legal limit and who had run a red light. Uh, the key on that one was to get a sudden emergency instruction, which, uh, was super helpful. And then on the others, what we talked about is just, you know, what the evidence was and the pattern here. And, and I focused on the causation instruction. And the reality was that the individuals, whether you called them John Doe or Marcus Jamal Jones, were not really the but-for cause because but-for those people by that name, there was somebody else by a different name where the same thing was going to happen based on the history. Right. And so with a history like this, there's, there's, it just, I think it's fair to say, you know, the names may be different every night, uh, but McDonald's knew that regardless of who was in the parking lot, there was going to be a big crowd with a risk of violence to innocent people. And so I, I think it's a, um, you know, it's a function of how you frame it, but it's also a function of the evidence in the case. Yeah. Well, and then how about the alcohol? I mean, did, did your focus groups uh, have a problem with your clients uh, being intoxicated? And and then I guess also with regard to uh, Hurricane Harry's who, that had, you know, helped them get intoxicated. Um, my, 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 the jury consultant that I used um, on this case is now retired. And so I won't say his name, but I, I think I can probably uh, tell you what he said to me. Um, he read the part about the alcohol after we'd done some focus groups. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't help you with this case. This was about two months before trial. He said, I cannot help you with this case. There is no way in Brazos County with your clients at a 0.18 and a 0.2 uh, that, that we can win this case. And, um, and I remember I said, well, what if I can keep that out? And he said, if you can keep that out, he said, first of all, if you can keep that out, then, you know, you're my hero Two, It's if you can keep that out, I think I can help you. We can win this case. Um, and so we got some admissions and developed the evidence and filed motions, no evidence motions for summary judgment on comparative negligence. And um, we ultimately were able to, they were not able to attribute, they, they had no evidence to support a negligent act by uh, Denton. And right. so the, and if I remember, Bailey Crisp was not on the charge either, was she? Did yeah, you, she, she yeah, yeah, she's on here. She? Um, yeah, she, they, I mean, the jury oh, found no okay. fault, but yeah, she yeah. was on And here. so the, the key was that there was no evidence linking, for Denton, there was no evidence of a negligent act. Okay. And so there's some case law in Texas. That uh, says, I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I, I read that wrong. They, she was on the one, they, they could have portioned her in her claim. Not yes. In the, uh, okay. That's what it was. Not in his claim. Great. Right. Okay. And so, yeah, that's exactly right. The, so the key is 
the alcohol or drug use is only admissible if you have evidence of negligence. And so what we did is make it, and they didn't see this coming because we, we filed it pretty close before the trial and it was heard at the pretrial conference and they just didn't respond well. Uh, and so their only evidence of negligence was that Denton was drunk, but they had no evidence of any negligent act. And so the court granted summary judgment on comparative negligence and kept that out. And with regard to uh, Bailey, what I remember is that the only negligent act they could come up with was that she was not wearing a seatbelt. And so the court said, I'm going to let you submit that as to Bailey only, but the alcohol doesn't come in because there's no evidence that her failure to wear a seatbelt was the result of alcohol or that any of her injuries were made worse because of alcohol. And so the key was those, those summary judgment motions on comparative negligence, because I think that the outcome of the trial might have been different if they had heard that. And remembering now, in fact, there was an incident in the trial where the judge had excluded all that and the McDonald's tech person played a video clip where Tanner Geeson had described how drunk Denton was and the court had excluded that deposition clip and he played it in front of the jury and you saw the jury like it, it, it had an impact on him. I mean, I was, uh, we were worried about it. And so I threw a fit um, and asked for, I don't remember, you know, that the judge throw the book at him and the judge said, I'm not going to, I remember the judge patting me on the back. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you that sanction. Uh, but he turned to the defendants and he said, but mistakes have consequences. And I am going to give the jury a curative instruction. And he, his curative instruction was to read from the medical record of Tanner Geeson, where that said Tanner Geeson had amnesia and had no memory of what had happened that night. Okay. Uh, and so the judge instructed the jury to disregard the testimony. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we kept the alcohol out for, for Bailey and Denton. It, it wasn't relevant, uh, but it would have been harmful if it had come in. Um, th that reminds me of one other point that I saw that the defense was raising was that on, while they were driving in the vehicle, he, so Denton had been beaten to the point of pretty much unconsciousness. Uh, and, and from your standpoint, that he had already received his fatal injuries and was dying. Right. Um, it, but there, I guess there was some te testimony from Samantha Bean in a deposition that he said while he was in the vehicle, he said something like, I don't want to go to the hospital. And so they were using that as a, a the defense was arguing that that was evidence that he wasn't injured as bad as you were saying. Um, and, I, and I think it, it, um, it was a point of cross-examination with your, uh, with your uh, medical examiner, Dr. Burton. Um, uh, at that point, do you remember that and how you all, uh, 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 I, I do remember on? that. What I remember is that it was also inconsistent with some other things that she had said. And it was pretty clear from taking it all together that it was, it, it had been Tanner that must've made the statement. Okay. And yeah. so, uh, it was just inconsistent with other testimony, but there were all sorts of little, and there were eyewitness <clears throat> statements. Like one of the eyewitnesses had confused Tanner and Denton and said she saw Denton walking around. Well, it was Tanner that she'd seen walking around, and we had to clean that up. Um, so there were some inconsistencies like that that they had to run with, but I think the reality on that one was 
she was describing something she heard Tanner saying, not didn't say. Right. Okay. Um, well, the, the only, uh, I wanted to, we've been talking for a long time, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did want to hear a little bit about how you presented damages and, and got the jury to award, as we said, uh, $16 million for Denton, which included uh, $5 million of pain and suffering, and then $11 million for, for Bailey, which was uh, the, the survivor, essentially the survival claim for her. Um, you know, I, my bag of tricks, uh, for lack of a better phrase, back then was probably not nearly as developed as it is now. Uh, I don't think there was any particular, you know, magical thing that we did. Uh, I think we spent a substantial amount of time uh, preparing the the parents. And we had some other, we had a couple other good damages witnesses. Um, like, you know, other death cases I've tried, um, I try to have the clients speak from the heart not try to overdo it. Um, you know, a death, the, the, the injuries, the, the harm to, you know, in a wrongful death case kind of proves itself in a lot right. of ways. I think that you can overdo it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, I don't think there was anything particularly magical that we did about it. I think that it was clearly a, really, really tragic loss. The, it was important for the jury to see uh, how special these kids were and how much their parents had, you know, really lost. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there was, I mean, I, I have some more uh, advanced approaches at this point, but I don't think I was really using any of them then. I think it was a compelling case. Uh, and with really, really great plaintiffs. One thing I do remember that we did thinking back on it, the case, and this probably wasn't apparent from the transcript, the case was tried in church. Uh, I don't know if y'all caught that. No. No, so it was tried, tried in a church? Okay. The courthouse was under construction. And so the case was tried in the Presbyterian church, old Presbyterian church building, it was tried in the sanctuary. The, uh, the court, uh, the county, Brazos County had purchased that building and was using it for a period of years as their courthouse while it was being renovated. I was initially concerned about it, but it ended up being great because we had a bunch of people there that came and watched. Also, it's probably a little relevant given the pandemic thing. Uh, don't be afraid to try cases in alternate locations. It can work great. Um, it actually, um, you know, that, that we could have a whole discussion on that topic in and of itself. But the reason I bring that up is this. So we're in a church, and what we did is we had two pictures of these kids. Uh, I, if I recall, Bailey from her high school graduation and Denton from maybe his high school football photo. Very nice, large, blown-up pictures that we put sitting behind us for the entire trial. And they stayed up the whole trial. And somebody at the end commented that if you'd have walked in on it, you might've had a hard time knowing whether it was a trial or a funeral. Right. Um, so, um, you know, uh, but, but beyond that, I remember we had a few good damages witnesses. And I remember when one of the damages witnesses came in that day, a group of kids came in to watch the trial and they were, had really just come in to watch the trial and they didn't know anybody, but it sure as hell seemed like it was Denton's football team that had shown up to, to hear the testimony. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I just think it was, it was a, 
it was a case that hit home uh, for jurors and the, 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 the victims were just, you know, you can't fake people really being just genuine good people that have suffered a really, really horrible loss. And I think there was everybody on that jury, um, you know, they saw their kids in that story. And that's really what that case was about. You know, I, I meant to mention, um, I, I saw that you tried the case with Bob Langdon, uh, from yeah. Langdon and Emerson, and we just had Kent Emerson on uh, a few weeks ago talking about a case that he tried against Ford. Um, so, uh, but uh, one, one Bob's thing- Bob's my father-in-law, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. That's Hell fantastic. of a guy. I love this yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're uh, uh, fantastic trial lawyers. Um, but one thing that, that you mentioned that he did, which I don't know why I've never thought of this, but I thought it was just such a great demonstrative to explain the burden of proof was that he had two stacks of paper and basically said, you know, if you move one sheet of paper over to the other stack, we've carried our burden. Yeah. You know, we've tilted the scales. That's it. We did uh, that in this case too. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah. I read that here and I'm like, I am absolutely going to steal that uh, yeah. and, uh, and not give you any credit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, no, it, I, I thought that was fantastic. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. And I, I, um, I, I'm not taking too much away, but I then take that and we'll link it in with damages in right. Bordire, uh, because that's a really potent area for cause strikes is when you link that ex, the, a sound explanation of burden of proof, up with the fact that you're asking for millions or tens of millions of dollars in damages. And once people really understand what the burden of proof is, your, your bad damages jurors that are never going to give you what you're entitled to, no matter what you prove, they may be able to toe the line on saying they could consider damages, but it, it all comes apart when they think about doing it just based on one sheet of paper. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a very potent demonstrative tool. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, Chris, this has been just a great discussion and, and uh, a great result. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners that we haven't talked about, about the trial involving uh, Bailey Crisp and Denton Ward? Yeah, there was one other interesting thing, you know, so the case settled on appeal. Okay. And on appeal, we had, we were represented by Wallace Jefferson, who uh, was a former chief justice of the Supreme Court. And the other side was represented by um, a draw a blank on his name. Another former Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, the case was argued to the Waco Court of Appeals at Blinn College. Oh wow! At a when they in it, it was ostensibly by coincidence that they had it on. You know, they they do it at various locations, and so they had three uh, cases that day. And they allowed the appellate lawyers to have three minutes to address the audience before they turned and argued the case. And Wallace Jefferson gave an absolutely blistering opening that said all sorts of things that if I had said them to the jury, I was certain would have caused a mistrial. But he apparently <laughs> wasn't concerned about that. Uh, and so they did an outstanding job. But the whole case, and the case was just unique in so many ways, from tried in the church to the appeal argued at Blinn College, where these kids, you know, had gone to school. And so uh, it was just a privilege for me to be a part of and, and glad we got this result for this really sad tragedy. Yeah, well, in uh, hey, I mean, it's just a fantastic result, uh, great work. And I'll just remind everybody that we've been talking about the case of Crisp and Ward versus McDonald's Corporation. 
Uh, it was tried in uh, in 2014, uh, and it was a total verdict of 27 million for the deaths of Bailey Crisp and uh, Denton Ward. And we've been talking to Chris Hamilton uh, at Hamilton Wingo LLP in Dallas, Texas, and you can look him up at HamiltonWingo.com. Chris, we've uh, we've really enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Thank you. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.